Hi, I'm Molly Moran, and this is the Table Wine Podcast. I am joined, as always, by my amazing co-host, Andy Stoiber. Hi. Hey, Molly. And not just as always, because today we are sitting next to each other. Andy and I are actually in the same room together for the very first time to record today. Yeah. Which is very exciting. A big deal. And nervous-making, because we're not sure how this is going to work out, but exciting. It's going to go. We're going to talk, and it's going to be great. Last night, I was cooking mushrooms, and I needed to tell you, because I was raised a pescatarian mm-hmm. and had to eat mushrooms a lot of my life, and I always hated them. They were always on veggie pizzas, like, no matter where you go, and I just hated them. It was always a mess. And it's so common that mushrooms are, like, the, the vegetarian option at weddings. It's like, you're, that's all you get. And I always hated it. I'm trying to cook mushrooms. I like portobellas, and sometimes there's great preparations, but I've always struggled with cooking them myself until the past two nights. I doused them in oil, butter, and wine, and goat cheese. A great combination. I just needed to share because I was very excited. I'm very proud of you. And it was like a good use of cooking with wine, too. I used yeah. a good amount of wine in a sauce, and I was like scared I was going to taste like wine. I'm like, oh, no. I'm proud of good. you, Andy. Thank you. It's great. Very excited. But Molly, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm so <laughs> I'm having a time, Andy. I'm having a time. I actually listened to our first podcast recently, and it was the end of last month. And the end of the month is a big deal at the wine shop. And here we are at the end of another month, and it's still a big deal. And now that new month is November, which is Thanksgiving, and that's a lot of that's a lot of wine. So I'm okay. I'm making it through. How are you? I'm good. I. I really do think everything is perspective taking and framing things in your mind as like what a gift life is or, oh, God, I'm so stressed out. And so it always ebbs and flows between how stressed I feel about things. But then it's like the same thing that I can be excited and happy about. And then the next day it's like, oh, no, I have to do that thing. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, things are good, though, right now. I do love the holiday season, but you see how busy that time of year can be is exhausting. So I'm like, oh, I want it to be January when it's like cold. No one wants to see each other. We can just be alone. We always host Thanksgiving. And last year we hosted an outdoor Thanksgiving, which was freezing cold. It was it was a brave, scony move on our that. part. Yeah. But it was small and intimate and really lovely. And then Christmas was just the three of us. And it was lovely. It was kind of like my ideal Christmas. You know, we watched Little Women and open presents over the course of like five hours instead of trying to, you know, squeeze it in. And I'm missing that. It felt like a great pause last year. A great, the great pause. That's, mm-hmm. I think, probably how it's going to be recorded. I agree. I'm really happy to see people. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, I wish I could pull out that like not allowed to see you thing whenever yeah. I wanted. And maybe that should be accepted. You should just be able to say no and not have any reason to say no. I'm pretty good at it, but I do think it then leads to maybe me not being as close to people as I want to be. And then when I do want to be around them, you know, like I'm like, I'm ready now. And people are like, yeah, OK, fine. Mm-hmm. Could I have other friends. <laughs> True. This is actually what I was thinking about is that I do think I talk less than I used to because the pandemic created so much more confinement and quarantining. And now when I am with people, I feel like and maybe I'm wrong that I let them talk more and I'm less eager to like jump in and just, which I think is a good thing. I think I talked too much before, but it is weird. I'm like, oh, if this had gone on for ever, how quiet of a person would I have become? Yeah. My very extroverted husband found himself being all very quiet 
you know, we would have well, hours of just reading. Maybe there'd be some very chill lo-fi music on, <laughs> you know. Yes, the house was much quieter back then. It's, it feels like it's filling up again with noise. Yeah. Well, you have a child, so. I know. They need. I know. I know. Noise. Noise. <laughs> Hashtag noise. Been greedy. <laughs> It's time now for our aperitif, a little bit of fun knowledge to wet your palate. There's a very important wine day coming up. It's Beaujolais Nouveau Day, everybody. Beaujolais is a region in France. The main grape there is Gamay. And Beaujolais Nouveau is a style of wine where the grapes are picked in September. The wine is made using carbonic maceration, which means all of the grapes and stems and everything are fermented together. It's called a whole cluster fermentation. The resulting wine is very fresh and fruity, very low tannin. It's all about this kind of clean purity of flavor. And the wine is released so that it is able to be sold on the third Thursday of November around the world. So when I get the wine at the shop, it comes with a tape that says, do not open until the third Thursday of November. The idea behind this wine is that it is the freshest wine in the world. That's kind of the intention with it. And I think that there's some marketing behind all of this, obviously. But it is a obvious sign to those of us who know what it is that the holidays are coming. It's exactly one week before Thanksgiving. Beaujolais Nouveau pairs beautifully with Thanksgiving dinner because it's just like this fresh, fruity, cranberry kind of tasting wine. It has nice acidity. It's lower in alcohol, so you can kind of drink it all day making it, again, just a great Thanksgiving wine. So whether you end up getting yourselves a bottle of Beaujolais Nouveau or not, I think that it's a great time to be grateful that we are all alive, that we are all able to live in a world where things like wine are celebrated. And I say cheers to you and yours. Happy Beaujolais Nouveau Day. Now it is time to pop the cork. And we actually have two corked wines today. Well, they're not corked. That means that they're well, bad. Oh, no, sorry. No, I mean, there was a Uncorked. cork in each one. <laughs> Let's be clear. Okay. Today, we are drinking wine that actually required a corkscrew. Not oh, it's cans, true. Not screw tops. This is... This is this is real wine. The real, real wine. The, the screw cap wines I've been drinking. Fake wine. Fake news. <laughs> Fake news. <laughs> so we will talk about our movie in a bit. But our wines do directly relate to our movie of choice, which is Sideways. Yes. We don't need to keep it a mystery. No. So, of course, we have to drink Pinot Noir. If you've ever seen Sideways, actually, even if you've never seen Sideways, I think you probably know. There are two things about this movie that you know. The guy is obsessed with Pinot Noir and he hates Merlot. So guess what we're drinking, everybody? Pinot Noir and Merlot. Paul Giamatti. I wish... With this podcast got famous, we could have Paul Giamatti on to talk about wine. I wonder if he actually likes wine. He doesn't. Oh, in really? my internet research, Alexander Payne is the wine yeah. lover. He's the um, director of Sideways. And he's the person who's really drawn to wine. He loves it. And Paul doesn't go in, to, in for all of it. It's not that he doesn't like, you know, think it's nice to drink it, but he's like, no way. No. Which kind of makes sense, though, because his character is so angry. He can channel that anger. I want to talk about. The I know wine we'll first. talk about the wine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Feel like the wine is less controversial, so True. let's talk about the wine first. Yeah. So we Our, are drinking Land of Saints. 
mm-hmm. from San Luis Obispo, which True. is Central Coast, right? Yeah. <laughs> Validate yeah. me. Um, which I, I'll be honest, I didn't even realize Central Coast was such a wine thing because like Napa and Sonoma. And I think that's probably understandable to most folks is that Napa, Sonoma, Northern California seems to be wine region. And then you realize, oh, no, everything between L.A. and San Francisco is also wine territory. And makes good juice. A lot of it is kind of bulk, cheap grocery store juice because the Central Coast is pretty warm. But then there are these little pockets within the Central Coast where the terrain leads to a little bit cooler weather as well as depending on where they are in relation to the ocean. Cooler air might come in. And so that's where it gets really great for Pinot Noir. So San Luis Obispo is one of those spots. Land of Saints is a really small producer. It's not one of the producers that's talked about in the movie, but it is, I think, in vain with the kind of producers that he likes. It's the kind of style that's very indicative of this area. And quite honestly, it's just so pretty. I know that that word doesn't immediately mean anything to folks. It very much looks like Pinot. I do think that I would look at this and say Pinot Noir. (laughs) You know, I think I'd maybe I'd smell it and I'd smell some raspberries. Yep. And some strawberries. Question. Yeah. How do you think the nose, <laughs> I think I know the answer probably, but Pinot Noir versus Gamay, purely on the nose, do you think there's a strong differentiator? Yeah. So Gamay usually has like a candied fruit thing, often candied raspberry, but candied. And then a lot of Gamay has a slaty minerality to it where you can smell the rockiness of it. Whereas Pinot, the fruit is, it is similar. I'm not going to lie. I think it's a real, I actually think this is a really good question. There's a reason you're my co-host. <laughs> um, Pinot has some of the same fruit flavors. You don't always get the candied thing, I think. And then not to say that you don't have minerally Pinots because you definitely do, but they tend to be more earthy. So more like walking through the woods on a, after a rainstorm. Or mushrooms. Haha, to go back to mushrooms for a second. (laughs) That kind of earthiness. So I think that those are the kind of bigger distinctions. Yes. That's great. Which are minute and geeky. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But really important. I think it's it's really great to be able to distinguish those things because I think if you had a glass of Pinot Noir and a glass of Gamay and you smelled both, well if you and you were listening to Molly as she described it, you go, Oh yeah, look at that. I think this (laughs) is great. I learned. (laughs) Thanks, Andy. This comes out the week before Thanksgiving, and Pinot Noir is a common Thanksgiving wine, right? Yes, as is Gamay. Yeah. So if you still need wine for Thanksgiving, one, one or both of those makes sense on your table. Time to drink. There's this wine word that I don't tend to use very much just because I don't feel like it necessarily equates something to folks. But when I tasted this wine, I thought to myself, oh, that's a high-tone Pinot. This is new, I think, for me. Yeah. So... It, a friend of mine said it to me yesterday about a different wine. And so I think that term is just kind of stuck in my head now. But it kind of means like, you know, there are pieces of music that have the, like the low bass notes that like you feel in your heart. And then let's say like the hi-hat cymbal, like that kind of like tinkly, mm. <laughs> like, like mm-hmm. a, you know, like a very alive note, right? Or like a strum of an electric guitar, like a very yeah. awake kind of feeling. And this Pinot Noir feels high tone to me. I would agree. After that description, a thousand percent. I think this makes, 
this makes sense as Central Coast wine. But no, I think this is what I associate with Central Coast Pinot Noir. It gets away. So I love Willamette Pinot Noir. And one of the kind of first wines that really got me into wine, I was like, oh, this is so fun. The minerality. This is not a minerally Pinot. It is nice, ripe to tart, mostly more ripe than tart, though, fruit, red fruit, right? Yeah, that's what I like about it. It's a little bit of ripe and tart. Yeah. Yes. I don't like Pinots that are all ripe, which is often the case with Central Coast Pinots. Like I said earlier, it's warm there. And so the grapes get riper. Yep. The wine tastes ripe. This, I think, has a nice a bit of the tartness, a little more to think of Thanksgiving, cranberry kind of flavors. Okay. Yeah. Image, kind of image. I guess where I'm ideally drinking this wine is dinner party-ish, more like one other couple over for dinner. And... I think this is a great after dinner for me. Like personally, something I would enjoy after a meal and like continuing the conversation. It's dark out. Maybe there's candlelight. You've already had a bottle or two, but split between a group of four. No judgment. <laughs> and then just something that's not, you know, the topic of conversation necessarily, but is just so easy to drink and enjoyable and light and doesn't make you more stuffed or full, but it's just easy drinking. Nice alcohol keeps the things buoyant and light as you keep on drinking and talking that's beautiful did you ever watch the show scandal andy i like the first episode i bring up scandal for this reason yeah. anybody who watched scandal i'm going to reference a specific episode because as andy was talking i was thinking in my scenario i need a fireplace to be there not that this wine has any smokiness to it there's just something about this wine that makes me want to be near a fire and there is an episode, I don't want to give too much away, I guess, for a show that's been off the air for 10 years, but I'll, st I'll still. They go to Vermont. There's a beautiful country home. There's some romance. And all I thought was, I want to be in that house doing that with this wine. That's all. No, I would agree. I definitely was like, ooh, a fire would be like, you can start to extrapolate into like leather armed, overstuffed armchairs, yeah. wood around everywhere your um, mind is so much cleaner than mine you said wood and i just started laughing like a <laughs> school kid ending yep. note on this wine perfect dinner party wine okay andy okay here we go <laughs> wine number two insert paul giamatti yelling no fucking merlot what is it? it is a good scene it is good here we go deep breaths it's, <sighs> so this wine is from a winery in france called Rocamora. It's called Je Deteste Merlot, which means I hate Merlot. It has a picture of a guy who looks remarkably like Paul Giamatti in Sideways with a glass. I mean, it looks exactly like the last scene of the movie. So there was no other Merlot for us to taste. This had to be our Merlot. It's, it is uncanny. The big Paul Giamatti energy this bottle of Merlot brings. It's amazing. You're saying deep breaths. So let's just get no. it up and open. Are you not a Merlot fan? Oh, the deep breath is not about the Merlot. No, I am definitely a Merlot fan. Okay. Of the things I am a fan of, Merlot is one of them. Other things we're going to discuss today, I am not a fan okay. of. I was like, is this like no. Merlot and other books? Like, <laughs> No, I love Merlot. I was having a conversation with Lucas, who works at the shop, who is wonderful, and Lucas and I were talking about how frequently people describe the characteristics of a wine that they want. And then they say, but not Merlot. And you're like, but the wine that you just described is Merlot. Like what you want 
is Merlot. You just don't know it yet. <laughs> or you think you don't like Merlot. And turns out you do. So Sideways did leave a really powerful cultural shockwave that to this day still exists. I would just say if you don't smell your wine, <laughs> I do think it's especially fun when you're drinking two things, when you have two things open, because then you really can tell, oh, how different these things are. Because it's just so apparent, the depth of this, the richer vibe just on the aroma. The trademark of Merlot is a red cherry note. Sometimes people will use chocolate-covered cherry, but they don't necessarily mean sweet. They just mean that there's like that kind of like bittersweet chocolate note and then also cherry. Yeah, this is like what I imagine a prototypical wine tastes like in so many ways. Like, right? This is. This what... wine is so lush in the mouth, but there are tannins. There's a little acidity. I'm not saying like, oh my God, this is the perfect wine. I just mean I love that the winemakers named it this because it's just a big middle finger to people who yeah. say they hate Merlot. <laughs> Go run and drink this. It is so balanced. I'm surprised. I'm nonplussed. I'm just at a loss of words. Like, you know, I'm not, I don't know if I should be shocked, surprised, like happy. I don't know what to say because it is just, it's hard to reconcile the vitriol against Berlot with the lovely balance. There's just Merlot nothing to hate is. here. No, there's nothing to hate. And like, this is what I think I'd want to give someone who's like, I want red wine. I would give them this. And like, this is what you think you want. I'm trying so hard not to just jump in because I completely agree with you. I'm just nodding my head vigorously at Andy like, yeah, keep going, keep talking because that's right. It tastes like French country wine. It makes me wonder how dominant is Merlot in France? It's the most dominant, it, Andy. It is the most dominant. It is, really? it is oh. the most widely grown grape in France. That makes sense. Cool. I'm just so smitten with this wine. I think everyone should try it. I talked about the Pinot Noir as an after dinner from my own. I just love Pinot Noir on its own. But this would be a stellar accompaniment to any meal where it would not distract you from what you're eating, but it would also give you like, oh, this wine is great. Yeah. And the one thing I wanted to say about Merlot before we leave it is that it's the only grape that's remotely affordable from Napa Valley anymore. And it's because it's not that popular. So wineries who are making it they kind of are making it as a passion project and they're kind of willing to continue to keep those vines planted to Merlot instead of planting them to Cab, which would be the obvious choice from a business standpoint. I won't say 100% of every Merlot I've ever tasted in the last 10 years is great, but it's a lot higher than the Pinot Noirs. I taste a lot of really bad, not interesting Pinots because they're so popular and you can make crap and sell it. Whereas Merlot, you can't, you know, it's not going to sell. So where should customers be looking for their Merlot to be from? It sounds like Napa. I mean, is it any, can you really trust Merlot from anywhere? Or, and even within France, when you're getting things that are just French, I, I mean, what, Languedoc, what are the big? Yeah, it would be Languedoc. I mean, I would say people can trust Washington State. People can trust Napa Valley. People can trust Bordeaux. You've got to be a little more cautious when you get to the wider, like the Languedoc-Roussillon, which is a very large region, or like central coast of California. You just have to be a little bit more careful about which wineries you're trusting. So yeah, yeah. if anything you get out of today, drink Merlot. Don't listen to Paul Giamatti. <laughs> it's so true. Drink Merlot. But like, how? So Merlot was super dominant like, through the 90s where people just like chugging Merlot. 
They were. So it's funny because now the story is being retold where sideways is not the reason that Merlot was on the decline and Merlot was already on the decline. And you can look at sales numbers and see that that is actually true, that Merlot had started to dip before sideways came out. But prior to sideways coming out, let's say this, Merlot was ubiquitous. Merlot and Cab went back and forth between which was the most popular grape in the U.S., you would walk into a big liquor store and you would see almost an equal number of case stacks of Cab as you would Merlot, and there would be very little Pinot Noir that you'd be seeing. So Sideways came along. Merlot stopped. I mean, they can tell you whatever they want to tell you. I can tell you that I worked at a wine store and people were like, no, no way, no Merlot. And you're like, you used to buy Merlot by the case. You used to buy 1.5s of Merlot you know, every three days. And now you're like, where's the Pinot? I want all the Pinot. And you're like, wow, I had no idea that one movie could be so freaking powerful. So Paul Giamatti can be so powerful. (laughs) Oh, is it Paul? I don't know. And I can say having taught classes about Merlot recently to people your age or maybe a little bit older than you, people who've never seen the movie, they also still have that idea. Like, they also have this hang-up about Merlot. So it's not just, oh, I watched the movie and I think that. Because having rewatched the movie recently, the Merlot scene is very short. Yeah. It's like not even, I don't think it's a full minute. It's like, I mean, it's like a five-second mention. Real, It's like, you know, a dramatic ex- moment. But it is a moment of the movie. Right. It's kind of bizarre that it had this explosive effect on the wine-buying industry. But it's real. The last thing I was going to say is my understanding, too, is that the popularity of Merlot grew the, the demand, right? And so people started planting Merlot more and more. So the quality control really got out of hand. And so there's just so much more of it being grown that there's just a lot more bad juice out there. It's 100% correct. And they, Merlot takes on very oaky tannins. So if it's aged in New American oak, it hurts your cheeks almost. It feels kind of raw, and I think that that's what a lot of people equate Merlot with. There's, like, a lot of cheap, I mean, cheap, cheap. Mm-hmm. Wood chips, you know. You're exactly right. It's a steel tank that has wood chips thrown in, yeah. and it tastes like it. So all these, I don't know, all these little details of how quality can be changed. And I mean, circling back to Pinot Noir, the growth of Pinot Noir's popularity, I think, reflects the wide variety of quality you get. We have to blend it and make it something that really isn't what Pinot Noir was supposed to be. In my Where opinion. people actually like Merlot, but they... Yeah, maybe <laughs> They're trying to turn Pinot Noir into Merlot. That's a good... This is a good theory. This is the theory of everything. Yes. 100%. Oh, man. Okay. Okay. That was yeah. great. That was great. Yeah. It's time now to decant. We're going to let our subject breathe a little bit and get into it. So our movie this week, as we've talked about plenty already, is Sideways. Came out in... 2004? Alexander Payne is the director. It is based on a novel. Yeah, which I didn't realize until watching it this time. It is based on a novel by Rex Pickett. It's a little self-autobiographical, maybe, as it's about a sort of failed novelist. Paul Giamatti, who really loves wine, is an eighth-grade English teacher, something I'd forgotten between watching. The main thrust of this movie is that this very miserable person named Miles, he's two years divorced... His close friend, college roommate, is getting married. And so they are going to Santa Barbara for a kind of a bachelor party week. I had forgotten that it's a whole week. Yeah. And the friend is played by Thomas Hayden Church. 
And the friend is uh, an actor, kind of like commercial, some TV show, you know, not like super famous. And he's a rake, to use a Bridgerton <laughs> term. Wait, a rake? Yeah, it's a Bridgerton uh, okay. term. He's not loyal to his fiance. No. let's say that. And they drink a lot of wine. They hook up with women who are well above their pay grade. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Like, so they're so good. I, Sandra. Oh, yeah. what a career she's had. And Virginia Madsen yeah. plays this woman who works at a restaurant who's really passionate and, and sweet about wine. And it's just about their stupid drunken exploits. They go on a bunch of tastings. That's that's the movie. Yeah. It really is that. It's hard to make this a binary, but good things about this movie. Especially about this movie. across all six of these wine movies we've watched. Let, this movie does some things. Here's right? my answer to that. They understand how people talk about wine. They are excited about the kinds of wines that people who are passionate about wine are actually passionate about. Mm-hmm. Which I really appreciated. The tasting rooms feel like real tasting rooms the other people in the scene. And, like, I think uh, to go to, like, what I think the second thing they got right was they shot this all on location. It's very clear that they shot it on location. You can go do the sideways tour. There's a map, and you can, like, go to all of the places. These are all real places. It feels that way. It feels very authentic. I was surprised by what Central California looks like. It's a desert, dude. There's parts of it that have like a Wisconsin thing because the German, there's like the German Austrian like restaurant vibe that like, you know, these interestingly intricate wooden areas. And I was like, what? This is central California? Like this could have been in Wisconsin, this restaurant. And so that, you know, not the glamorous L.A. San Francisco thing we are used to seeing about California of late or San Diego. Like it's kind of like a more middling take on what California life is. Things aren't always the most beautiful it's like commercialized living these wineries are just off the highway next to strip mall towns and i think it's a good take yeah and i think that there are scenes where the guys are tasting particularly jack who's played by thomas hayden church is like i'm not super interested in the wine you know i'm kind of interested in the woman who's behind the bar played by sandro or i'm kind of you know just here to have a good time But they're not dismissive and they're not mean to the people behind the bar in a way that they were in wine country in a way that made me really mad at wine country. And I thought that Sideways did it better. I think that they showed like, no, that's how you would actually talk to a person. Yes. And I love the dynamic of Miles being super snobbish about wine and like pouring out his tastings when he's like, "Mm, this is flabby. I don't like like. And then Jack being the guy that's like, oh, no, I think it's quite nice. Where I just like, there's such a natural dynamic of like, don't be an asshole to the wine pourer. I think if you take it too seriously, you're no fun to be around. Yeah. As evidenced by this movie. Yeah. What else did they get right? I think that there are aspects of Virginia Madsen's character that I really liked. I like her little wine speech. I referenced it in an earlier episode. I think that her character is believable when she's talking about wine. I think that the women are very great actresses. I think they do an amazing job. I like Alexander Payne, even though he's done Mm. some not great things. I think this movie shows off some great just filmmaking. (laughs) I love the scene where there's like three or four frames on screen and there's like showing the grapes and Mm. them drinking. And like, this is fun to see four things happening on screen at the same time. 
Sorry, that's a tangent. But, no, it's the Soderbergh style. And I like it. Yeah, it's giving you, and it, it shows some of the winemaking process, unlike wine country, where they just are in vineyard areas. They actually, there's a love for wine. Like, here, look at the people that are picking the grapes and some of the behind the scenes work that's happening. It's not the focus, but it creates like a mise-en-scene that is quite, I mean, something that I do like, I don't, or like, I'm curious about more are these wine bars that seem, again, they don't look like the fanciest restaurants, but it looks like they're pouring serious juice. And that's why Paul Giamatti's character is attracted to them. But, and that just sounds nice. When you're in wine country, you can expect these unpretentious restaurants and bars to be pouring good stuff, which is kind of shown in uh, Bottle Shock. Yeah, where it's like the, the, the neighborhood bar is like a serious wine bar. And I'm like, oh, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> that's my dream. I don't often lament living in a town of our size. I really like Madison. I've chosen Madison as the place I'm going to live to raise my family and own my business. But then there are those moments of like, I could own a place like that in a larger city. Yeah. You know? That's, and Or just it, make it happen here. Investors. You all have to make it happen here. It's <laughs> no, not yeah. me. I can pour the wine. Yeah. And so are people going to show up and drink it? That's you know? true. Yeah. Um, I would like the record to show that Andy and I both refilled our glasses well, and we both went with Pinot. Yeah. Well, <laughs> as much as we waxed on about how much we love the Merlot, we are both drinking the Pinot. So there you go. <laughs> Like Paul Giamatti, maybe you're Pinot people. It's, it's in the middle of the day, a Pinot is an easier thing to drink. Let's be fair. Yes. Watching this now, I was very struck by like, oh yeah, this movie is really about two white dudes that are just kind of awful. I get why Molly would hate this movie. So I guess I'll say my thing now is that watching this is almost painful because I'm like, oh God, what if I become Paul Giamatti? That's <laughs> And I remember the first time I watched this movie, I thought that too, where there's like, what if that's me in the future? And so that's why. Is that why you left table wine? Because you don't want to become that much of an asshole? Oh, no, no, no. But like the the character of like clearly someone who thinks they should have accomplished more in life. They have this like extensive knowledge of wine and that should give them like greater purchase on life or something. But then is this miserable, depressed dude that just feels like the world spurned him. But at least he can still drink wine and be miserable with that. Where I'm like, oh, I could see that. It's just like a sad potential future. You won't be like that. (laughs) You have a light inside of you that shines for the whole world to see. Everybody who meets you knows about this. But it's a good, I think it manifests a legitimate fear. That's fine. But Miles never had a light. Thanks. Okay. That, I hope so. I hope. They've given us no reason to believe that this character was ever likable. True. True. Well, There's nothing there. They've given us no reason to follow him or be sympathetic to him. I really hate it. And I hate that it is a good representation of my industry for the first time. Here's a movie that shows what people are like and whatever. And it's all based on a character that is so cringy that I can't watch it. And then, oh, here's his friend who actually might be cringier. And it just blows my mind that I know women who like this movie. It plays to that audience. And I think Paul Giamatti's character can be, it is sympathetic because of what I'm describing is like this fear of like, oh no, what if that's me? Like, what if mm-hmm. that is my future? But those aren't the people I know who like this movie. The people who responded when I asked originally, what are your favorite wine movies? Are smart women. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then I was like, maybe it's not the same as when I saw it. Maybe it's different. And then I watched it 
And I was Googling while I was watching it. Why do people like Sideways? I don't know if it has to be likable to be. It's realistic, I think. I think the, this like these people could exist. Like I, this whole experience seems very plausible. And I just don't want to see it. Yeah, I understand that. I don't disagree with you. I think you're right. I just don't think that we need to honor those people with a movie. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's where I'm like, I don't think the movie will get made today. It no, feels I, so not interesting. Like nothing happens. No character development happens. And at the end of the movie, you know what? The guy who's an asshole the whole time is alone drinking Merlot because guess what's delicious? Merlot. <laughs> and I guess that's supposed to be the big like ha ha moment. It just I don't get it, man. <laughs> <laughs> It's like a morbid enjoyment or connection where like, I do still think it's a good movie, but I do think it is also a bad movie. <laughs> like, I totally agree with everything you're saying, but the way these characters are developed quickly, like the first scene when Paul Giamatti Miles goes to Jack's house and the fam, like these interactions felt so natural and it was like, this is good storytelling, even if you hate the story. I think that you don't like it so much is still a testament to it being effective. <laughs> I guess there are people in this world who have nothing good about them. Just nothing good about him? Not one thing. What's good about him? Tell I, me a thing. I, well, we're seeing him at like his lowest, though, right? Where there, I think there's a sketching that he was a better person. <laughs> I don't know. That right. I don't see a character who has anything good about him what he has good is the only friend he has is his college his freshman year college roommate why don't you have other friends for this whole week of wine tasting i guess the thing that's good i mean like you see some people in these restaurants and bars like him but that probably just means he spends a lot of money I, maybe it's just paul giamatti and his acting. i just don't feel the same way i i don't dismiss his acting ability I just think that he uses it for ill because I just hate the character so much. But he's so beloved in... This is the Reddit know. rabbit this hole I went question. down, dude. Okay, this is the Reddit rabbit hole I went down, which was people like you asking the question of like, why don't people like Paul Giamatti? My friends and I all love him, and yet some people don't like him. He's such a great actor. And I was like, is he? Because he always plays an asshole. He's gotten so famous because I think he brings himself to his roles and i feel like that's a certain technique that is not widely employed or done the way he does it. and i'm like sure he is a different person than he is in this movie but i think he plums the depths of his like wickedness the worst kind of person he is and brings it to his these roles also to be really vain for a hot second it grosses me out when hollywood believes that these hot women are gonna even talk to these guys it's ridiculous and yeah okay you can tell me she's so smart and see that's what we're showing here is that they're meeting on an intellectual plane and i'm like no she would find an attractive intelligent man she doesn't have to settle for a schlub she's amazing and so she gets to go off and be with an amazing person she does not have to be with the loser that's fair i, <laughs> I yeah i don't need to watch this again in my life i think because it does the wine stuff well though this is a testament to wine like or the the cultural phenomenon of wine that people are like, ooh, a movie that does wine stuff well, I like that. And I think that's why people like it is because it 
is the closest artifact that like resonates with people's love for wine or an aspirational love for wine. Like, oh, I like sideways because I really like wine. But that's how I always thought this movie's pitched is like, it's the best wine movie. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's true. Yeah, I think that people like this movie because they're like, I like Pinot. I like this movie. This movie is good about Pinot, right? Like, I agree. And I had to start drinking. That is the thing. Like, 20 minutes in, I was like, ooh, they're like, they're drinking. And I'm like, I need a drink. Where I think it's, it does just make you want to drink. And it's fun to drink along. I had some Pinot with it. Yeah. So. It, really what I've learned through this season is that I need to write a wine movie that is good about wine, but maybe doesn't just glorify mean white men. Yes. I agree. <laughs> Do it. I have we so much. We can make an audio play. Of- <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I have so much free time, Andy. I really think I have time to write a movie. I think, let's do that. Let's do that. If anyone has a wine movie they want to be done as an audio play, I think there's a Frasier episode where they do an audio play, and it's so good. And I'm like, maybe that's the next frontier. Table Line Productions off, off Broadway. Frasier makes another appearance on the Table Wine podcast. Someone asked for it in a review. They said more Frasier. So I'm giving them more Frasier. And maybe you love that episode where they do the play broadcast. Give them what they want, Andy. Is there anything else that we want to say about? It feels like this movie has so many different nooks and crannies we could really dive into, but maybe not. I can just say the fear of like, oh God, what if I become Paul Giamatti in this movie is so real. So... Maybe that's why it's popular. It strikes a chord because it's like, what if that's me? Okay. And, <laughs> maybe we'll cut this out, but <laughs> something I think is interesting, the infidelity that Jack exhibits. I was like, see, today, if this was made, it would be like a polyamorous relationship. And they'd be like, oh, is he breaking the rule on how he said, how he could hook up with other people? Like that to me, I think there's like this shift in... That that's all. I think it's interesting. Molly <laughs> can't control herself. I'm learning that if Andy and I are going to record together in the same room, that I'm going to have to keep my eyes closed for half the time because I can't even make eye contact with him because I'm laughing so hard and I don't want to laugh over what he's saying because it's so spot on. And I'm like, yeah, I know those people. That's totally it, man. Yeah. Yes. So another <laughs> shift. Things have changed in the past 17 years. Okay, Molly. Well, that was sideways. Tell us what you think. I would love to hear some fan feedback if you're like a diehard paul giamatti fan maybe you're listening paul giamatti like six degrees of separation someone listening to this is at least like three degrees away from paul giamatti let's find him let's find Um, out what he has to say about this yeah (laughs) okay so that's the end of the season of talking about wine movies get ready for a season exclusively dedicated to parent trap and (laughs) (laughs) that's my dream discussing dennis quaid's winery uh that's Andy's spinoff show. That'd be great. So Molly, it is time for our nightcap. And since it is almost Thanksgiving, I want to know, what is your favorite Thanksgiving dish? Boy, this is a tough question for me. I host Thanksgiving every year and have been doing that since early in my marriage. So I love to make Thanksgiving dinner and I tend to change the menu pretty radically every year. So there are very few things that make an appearance every year. So in my mind, I think my answer has to be the thing that never changes because it's like, well, that's the thing that you want every year. So there is an apple cake that I make every year. It's in a bunt pan. And I think the cake has two sticks of butter in it. And then it has a stick of butter on the glaze. It is ridiculously hedonistic and indulgent. 
And I love it so much. And that's my answer. We have it for breakfast the next day. I allow my child to have cake and pie for breakfast the day after Thanksgiving. And I don't think it would be Thanksgiving without my apple cake. That sounds so good. Maybe share the recipe. Is it or a secret? Or come to Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah. Everybody. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Molly's invited everyone to Thanksgiving. So, I can share the no. recipe. I, I can that do could, that. Where'd you find the recipe? Where's this from? I think it's like a Bon Appetit recipe. Okay. From a long time ago. And it was an article about why you need to buy fresh spices. It's all about don't just buy stale spices that sit in your drawer forever and that you forget about. And it made me start shopping at Penzi's mm. Spices because, you know, I'm going to buy smaller quantity and I'm going to buy higher quality and I'm going to go through them more quickly. And so it's kind of like a spice cake. That's kind of like the, the vibe. So I can share that recipe. Sure. That's such a good, I feel like that's the big pro tip on cooking is like using fresh spices. It's hard, sure. but it seems life changing. The first time I used fresh paprika, you know, like. Yeah. Oh, it's bright red and it smells, it's aromatic. And I used it to make goulash. And the meal c tasted completely different than the goulash I'd made a million times before. Amazing. Yeah. Andy, what's your favorite Thanksgiving dish? Hands down, it is stuffing. Because circling back to my upbringing as a pescatarian, we didn't eat red meat and poultry. We ate seafood, right? And I never ate stuffing growing up because I thought there was always meat in it or like mm. came inside of a turkey. I was very confused. A lot of Thanksgiving foods, I was like, is this meat? So Thanksgiving was always like the worst meal of the year for me because I would eat corn. Actually, I loved corn and mashed potatoes, but I'd come home and I'd be really hungry because it's always meat-based foods. And then I learned, oh no, stuffing can be vegetarian and it's the best things. It's like bread and butter and just all the best flavors. So decadent and i think it's like bread pudding any form of like bread and cream too is great but out now it's just like a special thing because i've only had it for a handful of years and i'm like and we don't eat stuffing other times of year which i don't get why is stuffing only a thanksgiving thing outrageous <laughs> but andy's it, more upset about this than sideways <laughs> yeah I, think so. I don't get it why is their culture so prohibitive around stuffing with that note what a pleasure this season has been yeah. and molly what should the people know about the Table Wine Podcast? That we will be back with a whole new season, with a whole new theme, but it will still be Andy and I being charming as hell, drinking wine. And we hope that you continue to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you want to find us. And look for some bonus episodes throughout the holiday season. We don't want to not love you guys. We just have a wine shop and a PhD to get, so... You know, <laughs> seven years later. <laughs> so thank you guys for listening to season one. It has been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Surreal. And an honor. Yeah. And yeah, reach out through DMs. It is really wonderful hearing people telling me they're listening to the podcast and want, you know, the astrology Instagram account I referenced. Feel free to follow me. I'll accept you most likely. <laughs> Um, all right, Andy, I think it's our time. Well, is it time to cheers? I think so. And I think we can actually Wait. do it in person this but time. Ready? Chin chin, everybody. Chin chin. The Table Wine Podcast is brought to you by me, Andy Stoiber, and Molly Moran. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Craig Ely of Fieldnoise.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Table Wine Shop. 
Thanks for listening. Hope you tune in again soon.